be seated. And let me ask you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 as we attend to God's Word. <clears throat> Some of you may be wondering, why does the uh, projection keep blinking on and off? Well, uh, a couple of months ago, we had quite a storm, and it, it messed with our cabling. <laughs> They're trying to fix it. Uh, but uh, but it's, it's a situation they're aware of and seeking to remedy. And meanwhile, last Sunday, our other, one of our projectors went out and needs to be replaced. So uh, thankful for the faithfulness of those men and women who serve in our AV team. Uh, we notice when things don't go well. We don't particularly notice when things go well. But they go well more often than not, for sure. We're very grateful for their work. Well, some of you remember, <clears throat> some of you older guy, folks, will remember my dear friend Lou Sloger. He's a pastor in Papillion, Nebraska, which is near Omaha. And uh, many years ago, probably, probably 20, 20 years ago, his teenage son Jared wanted to learn how to go scuba diving. Now, I dare say there's not a lot of scuba diving locations in Omaha, Nebraska. Well, Lou saw this as an opportunity for father-son bonding time, so they took lessons, they got certified, and they planned a trip to Cozumel, Mexico, which is a very popular destination for scuba divers. And every site, diving site around the island has a name, and on their second day, they went to the Santa Rosa Wall. Now, at the Santa Rosa Wall, there's the ocean floor that's about 30 feet deep, and then you come to the edge, and it just drops off. There's the wall there and it drops down into the abyss. And the, 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 the thing to do at the Santa Rosa Wall, you go to the edge, you go over the wall, you go down about 10 feet, and, and Lou said it's just spectacular marine life. It's just glorious to observe. But the danger is that there are down currents at the Santa Rosa Wall. And if you get caught in one of those down currents, it can sweep you out and you might not come back. And so they tell them, watch out. Pay attention. Stay close to the wall lest you drift away because it can pull you away. And sure enough, Lou, I'll, I'll read the way Lou wrote it. He said, Jared began to drift out a little, so I grabbed the back of his tank and pushed him back toward the wall. And when I pushed him back, I pushed myself out, and not only did the current begin to take me out further into the ocean, it pushed me down deeper. In a very short period of time, I was swept out and lost sight of my own son, and on my dive group, he knew he was in deep, deep trouble. And so he said, our dive instructor came after me and found me at 95 feet in just a very short period of time, and basically out of air. I had to share air with him to make it back to the surface, and I needed his help to get back into the boat because I was physically exhausted and emotionally spent. He waited another 20 minutes to find out if Jared was okay because they were still diving and Jared had to stay with the group. <clears throat> but we see that drifting away nearly cost our brother his life. And it has cost the lives of others at the Santa Rosa Wall. At the beginning, that drifting can be very, very subtle, but in the end, it can become so very deadly. Our text this morning is a warning to us about spiritual drifting. And here I find uh, three main points I want to bring out. First of all is this earnest appeal. Pay attention. And then a solemn warning. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And thirdly, a trustworthy confirmation given to us by the Lord, attested by his disciples, 
and attested further by the, fa- by the Father through signs and miracles and wonders. Well, let's look first of all this earnest appeal. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. The book of Hebrews contains many appeals like this. The purpose of this book was to encourage beleaguered saints to endure, to persevere in their faith. Let me give you a few examples. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and we read verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be heartened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or later, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It's an, ad- uh, an admonition there, an appeal to make-, make sure that you don't fall short, that you don't miss the grace of God. Then we come to the end of chapter 14, one of the most beloved uh, exhortations or ab- ad- admonitions in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So we're exhorted here, hold fast to this confession of the gospel which you have, this confession of faith, and draw near, be frequent at the throne of grace, clinging fast to the Lord Jesus, your great high priest. And then look further in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, a a very uh, well-known text in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, remember chapter 11 is the hall of faith, the, the, the testimonial of Old Testament saints who, by faith, uh, accomplished great things for the Lord and his kingdom. And it's interesting, if you read that, you see uh, men who, and women who had a host of sins and failures, but those are overlooked in Hebrews 11. It's all about their faith, which gives us great comfort. And so we see in chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, being those referred to in chapter 11, testifying of God's grace and his faithfulness, Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this appeal to run with endurance this race that is marked out before you, not to lose heart, not to give in, not to be weighed down or, uh, with, with cares of this world or by sin that clings so closely, but rather keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and run to become more like him. Well, the text that we're coming to in chapter 2 this morning tells us that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That is the appeal. Now, Scripture puts tremendous emphasis on how we hear, that we are to pay close attention to what we've heard. And the Bible frequently emphasizes our listening, our hearing. In fact, Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Children, When mom and dad give you instruction, they say, I want you to go do this chore. I want you to go make your bed, clean your room, set the table, whatever. 
the, 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 the sound waves of their voice come into your ear canal and they make it to your, uh, your, your uh, eardrum. The question is, does it then go from one ear out the other and it's lost or does it actually lodge in your brain and you not only hear it, but you actually listen? Well, how do we know that you listened? Because you do what they say. So when Scripture speaks of hearing or paying attention or listening, it's not only comprehend the message, but it's obey the message, that which God tells us to do. Jesus told us the parable of the four soils to emphasize the different ways people hear the message of the gospel. There's the the path that's hard as rock, and and the seed falls on that path, but it makes no penetration whatsoever. The birds come and and, and eat the seed and carry it off, and it it does nothing. But then there's the the stony soil. The the, the seed hits the soil, and it it goes down and quickly springs up, but it, it can't penetrate the rock, and so it has no root. And as soon as things get difficult, they abandon that faith they once professed. Or the the thorny soil where, where the seed goes in and it grows up, but concerns about this world, worries and, and, and concerns choke out the life, and so it becomes unfruitful. And then there's one soil where there's real listening, real hearing, real heeding, and it grows up and it bears good fruit, fruit that will last. So my question is, how are you Listening. How are you hearing? Are you paying attention as, as the word is preached? Are you listening? I would encourage you to develop this habit, okay? I want everybody to look at me right now. Everybody look at me? Because the best way to listen is with your eyes. Now, you're saying, uh, Pastor Jamie, didn't you take science class in school? You listen with your ears. Well, I don't know whether you're listening with your ears or not, but if you're looking with your eyes, I probably, I can be confident that you probably are actually listening with your ears too. But if your eyes are all over the place, who knows what you're listening to, right? So if it's an important message, if it's inconsequential, if it doesn't matter, let your mind wander. It doesn't matter. But if it's an important message, such a great salvation, then you should be riveting your attention. You should listen with every fiber of your being and pay attention to that which God brings to us in his word. And it doesn't matter whether it's me preaching or Pastor Mark or Ivan tonight or anyone else who may stand in this pulpit. We're seeking to bring and apply the word of God to your hearts and lives. We must listen. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you concentrating? And are you thinking about how does this apply to my heart and to my life? Are you seeking to understand and make sense of the word? Or is your mind just kind of drifting off into who knows where? One of the challenges in putting a sermon together, when I think of a really, really great illustration, I have to make sure that I can go from that illustration to the point I'm making and that you're not still off wandering around all of the thoughts about that illustration and I never get you back, okay? So we want to listen and be effective listeners. Now, the context here is not so much about listening as the word is preached. The context here is about listening, having what you have already heard, pay attention to that which you have already heard. Whether you've heard it a thousand times before 
or whether it was an event in, uh, where you actually heard the gospel, you heard the good news, you, you embraced Jesus Christ as your own, and you said, I will follow him. <clears throat> he will be my Lord, and I will be his child. And the warning, if you have professed faith in Christ, you have professed to believe in him, you have embraced him as your Lord and Savior, don't allow your heart now to drift. The Hebrew believers to whom this epistle was written faced a number of challenges if they failed to hold fast the confession of their faith, if they failed to persevere, if they failed to run with endurance, if they allowed themselves to get bogged down by the weight of sin, then they were likely to drift away. And the writer here is saying, do not let that happen to you. Pay attention to that which you've heard. Now, what does drifting look like? If you don't pay attention, you might drift. What does that look like? We know with Lou, it means he was swept out and down and had his dive master not swum down there quickly with the skill and the strength that he had and rescued him and buddy breathed him to the top, Lou would not have made it. But what does it look like spiritually? Those first influences, those first currents might be almost imperceptible. Have you ever been to the beach? And you go out on the water, and you, you look back, and, and there's your towel, there's your chair, there's your umbrella, there's your, you know, your other people who are in your group, and you're right in front of them, and you're out in the water playing around a little bit, and, and, and you're not paying attention, but there's a, a subtle undertow. I'm not talking about something that sweeps you, it's just, just subtle, right? And you look up, and they're way down there, you're like 50 yards away, and you're saying, how did that happen? Very subtly, you're drifting and I can remember going to the beach a lot as a kid. And we'd, you know, every few minutes, we'd have to stop and walk in and, uh, where the water wasn't very deep and walk back into front of where my parents were and then go back out again because we were drifting. And we had to pay attention lest we find ourselves out of their sight. So what does that look like spiritually? There's a little less holding fast, a little less running with endurance, a little less paying attention to matters of your heart and of the Word and spiritual disciplines, a little more listening to the message of this world rather than the Word of God, a little more compromise with the pressures or the enticements that surround you. And then one day you wake up and you find yourself in this backslidden condition. You find yourself uh, in maybe in real spiritual trouble and you say, how did I get here? Well, you got there very gradually most of the time. And there are a number of causes, a number of things can cause us or induce us to drift away. One is fear. Again, these believers were uh, they were facing opposition for their faith. If you read in chapter 10, you'll see that they, it says they endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So sometimes they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And some of them, even their property was seized. And yet it said you'd face those afflictions with joy. This was early in their Christian experience. I'm guessing, I don't know this, I'm guessing he's referring to what happened in Jerusalem. When uh, Stephen was stoned to death, the very first Christian martyr in chapter 7, and then in chapter 8 it says that Saul of Tarsus, who we know was converted later and became an apostle Paul, but Saul led this great persecution in Jerusalem against the church. And he was breathing out threats against the people of God. 
And it tells us that Christians scattered from Jerusalem and they went out through Judea and the entire surrounding regions. And everywhere they went, they continued to tell people about Jesus Christ. They lost their homes, but they did not lose their zeal and they did not lose their courage and they didn't lose their joy. But now it seems like fear may have robbed them. That joy may have subsided some. Their zeal had dimmed a bit. And some, by all of the warnings and appeals in here, it seems that some were even considering turning back. Now, in Greenville, South Carolina in 2023, we don't face prison. We don't face physical violence for our faith. We don't face somebody coming and seizing our property. And we know there are some isolated events throughout our country where, uh, where real issues do happen. But for the most part, those aren't the kind of things that we have to contend with. You may face criticism. You may face opposition. You may face ridicule. You'll certainly face misunderstanding. But we must not allow fear of these things to cause us to shrink back. Because when we do, we'll begin to drift. So fear is the first cause. But another is discouragement. Spiritual weariness, the cost of discipleship begins to seem too heavy, too costly. Maybe the Lord has brought hardship into your life and that hardship has stayed and it like calcifies. And at first you were trusting God and there was a vibrancy to your faith, but over time you find yourself weighed down and your heart becomes heavy and your joy becomes elusive. And for a host of reasons, these difficult circumstances seem to be more than you can bear. And so we take our eyes off Jesus and we begin to drift. Hebrews 12 that says we're to run with endurance the race marked out before us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Verse 3 tells us, consider him who endured from, such, uh, such, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus' perseverance as you fix your eyes upon him so that you won't lose heart, so you won't let discouragement cause you to drift. A third cause of spiritual drifting is disillusionment. That's discouragement that has gone all the way to the core of your being, and you're asking yourself the question, is it really worth it? Is God who he really says he is? You know, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, and God told him, I'm going to send you to prophesy against the stubborn people, and they're not going to repent but you're going to be the precursor of my judgment. But hoping against hope, he preached and preached and preached, and when judgment fell, he was devastated. And we read in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3 particularly, he speaks of just how disillusioned he was, and he says, "Uh, I have been deprived of everything I hoped for in the Lord. He's disillusioned, not just with the circumstance, he's disillusioned with God. Now, that's where... He says, yet to this I call to my mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, which is where we get that hymn from. But at the beginning of the chapter, he was disillusioned. And if we don't call to mind those things that give us hope, if we don't hold fast to the confession of our hope, we will drift. We will lose our grip and we will drift away. One of the causes of drifting is simply sin. It clings so closely. 
It causes, in chapter 3, it says, uh, unbelieving hearts fall away from the living God. Another is the attractions of the pleasures and the pleasures of this world. In Revelation, in our study of Revelation, we saw there are three great enemies of the Christian that are sent out by Satan. One is the beast, represented by governments that persecute the people of God. The second is the false prophet, represented by uh, religions that distort the truth of the Word of God. Whether it's blatantly unchristian, like Islam or Hinduism or whatever, or if it's those false prophets that distort the gospel just enough. There's, there's just enough truth to make it believable, but enough error to make it destructive. But the third is Babylon, the harlot, who doesn't oppress, she seduces. And that's the influence of the world. And that's what I believe in America is the biggest challenge to our churches. It's not that we're being persecuted And in many cases, now there's certainly a lot of false teaching out there, but in many cases, it's not error that's our problem. It's worldliness, the seduction, and the enticements of this world. Jeremiah 2.13 says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. So we go to this broken cistern over and over again, and we come away thirsty and empty and discouraged and frustrated, but we keep going back again and again and again because the harlot Babylon has put her hooks in us because we've let her. We've drifted. She promises satisfaction, fulfillment, enjoyment, but she leaves us empty and broken, and when we're in the grip of the world, we drift and then we plunge. It's not usually a dramatic plunge. It's usually a gradual drift leading to that greater plunge. Well, another cause of drifting. Oh, excuse me. Let's move forward. The surest safeguard against drifting. How do we make sure this doesn't happen to us? How do you make sure it doesn't happen to you? And the answer is pay attention. We see this appeal as essential. We must Pay closer attention. It's also an intense appeal. We must pay closer attention. We must realize the danger is greater than we, than we ever understood. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in, these, in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Other translations say, take heed to your life and your doctrine. Hold fast your confession Guard your heart and your life. Keep a close watch on both. Pay attention to what you believe, what you allow your heart to embrace, and what you, the way you behave. Pay attention to both. When I was in seminary, there was a series of quotes on little posters on the wall in the seminary I went to, and one of those quotes says, we put into practice those things we truly believe. The rest is just religious talk. James calls us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. So, paying attention looks like holding fast your confession. You embrace God's word as truth, as absolute truth. You don't allow competing messages to compete with your heart, to pull your mind and your heart away from the purity of the truth of the gospel. 
No matter how compelling other arguments might sound, no matter how reasonable, no matter how popular, and no matter how intense the pressure, we hold fast to Christ, to his truth. We live in a democratic society, but truth is not democratic. It's not determined by popular opinion. If it were, we'd be in trouble in places like India or places like China or places like Saudi Arabia where the vast majority of the population believes something vastly different from the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God is true because He says it is. And we must not be concerned or swayed by what other people might say in opposition. Paying attention also looks like telling yourself the truth when your heart is struggling with doubts or fears. We all know that internal dialogue that we have when you're struggling, when you're going through hard times, and there's this, we're we're talking to ourselves, we're talking within ourselves, and the question is, are you telling yourself the truth? Are you holding fast the truth of God, the, the promises of God, the character of God? Are you allowing your mind to wander and be controlled by doubts and discouragement? Paying attention looks like running with endurance the race that's marked out for you, even if you're weary and tired, holding fast to Jesus, keeping your eyes fixed upon him. It means identifying the influences that would lay you down and the sins that would so easily entangle or would cling so closely, laying those aside that you might be free to run to Christ. Your focus is on who he is, who Jesus is, what God wants for you and what he wants to do in you and for you. Paying attention also looks like exhorting one another every day, lest any be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's not an isolated, individualistic exercise. It's a community commitment. We're to run with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, but doing so together. We're to encourage one another every day. We're never told to try to go it alone. Our shame, and let's face it, we all wrestle with failure. We sang of some of our failures in, in the hymns that we sang earlier. Our shame tells us hide in the corners, hide in the shadows. And the Lord continues to invite us out into the open. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Walk in community. Pay attention with one another. The gospel invites us to that kind of community. So this earnest appeal here is pay attention so that you do not drift away. But secondly, we have a solemn warning in verse 2. It says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This great salvation, the gospel, is the greatest possible news. Now, when, when, when we read here of the, the message delivered by angels, what are we talking about? We're talking about the law. Tradition said that it was God, through angelic mediators, gave the law to Moses. In fact, Moses alludes to that at one point in Deuteronomy 33. He speaks of God coming with myriads of the host. In Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, he makes reference to the angels who, or an angel who spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. 
In Galatians 3, 19, Paul says that an angel delivered the the law to Moses. And so, a, a significant portion of what he's been building to in Hebrews 1, that Jesus is superior to angels because the message Jesus gives is superior to the message the angels gave. The angels gave the law, but Jesus gives us the gospel. And the gospel is infinitely superior to the law of God. Now, there's nothing defective about the law. This is not in any way to denigrate the law and say it's not important. The law, in fact, it says here that that message proved to be reliable. Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy and just and righteous. It defines for us what righteousness looks like, but the law in and of itself is not sufficient to save anyone by observing the law no one can be declared righteous before God the law rather exposes us our our sin it can never deliver us however from sin and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is sufficient Jesus perfectly kept the law the law which he gave he placed himself under his own law obeyed it and suffered the consequences of that law because you and I did not That's the good news of the gospel. He met all the requirements and obligations of the law. Jesus achieved for you and me a perfect human righteousness. He did so in our place because we cannot present ourselves righteous before God by obedience to the law. Jesus justifies us. He declares us righteous. He clears our record of sin and gives us a positive human righteousness righteousness before God. That is grace, and that is good news. It is a great salvation. And what we read here is that the penalty for neglecting such a great salvation is severe. How shall we possibly escape? You remember the Hebrews in the wilderness coming from Egypt to the promised land. They'd received the law. They saw the manifestation of God every day in the the cloud by day and the the pillar uh, by night. And manna raining down from heaven. And they had crossed the Red Sea that was spread open miraculously. And they crossed over in dry land. And yet, they failed to obey the law. They promised they would. All you have said, we will do. (laughs) But they didn't. And we read that they experienced their just retribution. In 1 Corinthians, Paul warns us from the example of the Hebrew children in the wilderness. He says, some indulged in sexual immorality and 23,000 were killed in a single day. Some uh, put Christ to the test and they were destroyed by serpents. Some grumbled against God and they were destroyed by the destroyer. That was their just retribution. It was not to be made light of. It was severe God took disobedience to his law very seriously. Now, here is the argument we find here in Hebrews chapter 2. How much more serious is the neglect and despising of the gospel? If the gospel is infinitely superior to the law, if Jesus who gives us the gospel is infinitely superior to the angels who gave us the law, mediated from God, of course, how shall we escape? If those who broke the law were judged, how shall we escape if we neglect the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the writers said, our author is pressing on his readers the extreme seriousness of carelessness and unconcern. This is 
what they call an if-then argument. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this is true, this lesser thing, those who received the law, which is less than the gospel, if they were punished, then how much more should we expect punishment? How shall we expect to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Imagine for a moment you're in an apartment building. Let's say you're on the 23rd floor. Knock on the door. And there's a fireman there who says the building is on fire on the third floor. It's utterly consumed in flames. In a very short time, every possible escape will be cut off. You must come with me. You must come right now or you will not survive. And you look around and you say, I don't smell any smoke. Don't feel any heat. Don't see any flames. Haven't heard an alarm go off. I'm not so sure the danger is real and I'm not so sure it's imminent. I'm fine. What's going to happen? How will you escape if you neglect such deliverance? You won't. You come now or you'll burn up. Now, some have said the only sin that can condemn a person is the the, the failure to believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, That's not actually true. Any sin is sufficient to condemn a person to an eternity in hell. All sins are worthy of condemnation. But receiving Jesus will deliver any sinner from the condemnation of hell. There's a nuance there. In John 3, 18, we read, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. His unbelief is not the cause of his initial condemnation. He's condemned already. But his unbelief, his refusal to believe, is what leaves him in his just condemnation. So neglecting this, this great salvation leaves a person on the path of destruction he's already been on. Rejecting Jesus Christ when you've heard it compounds your guilt, absolutely. So you who are in the hearing of the gospel, you're in the hearing of the good news, maybe you've grown up with it all your life, how can you expect to escape if you neglect such a great salvation? Uh, Now, what does it mean to neglect this great salvation? It may mean an outright rejection of the invitation of the gospel, In Matthew chapter 22, uh, 1 to 5, Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast where the the master of the feast sends out his servants and tells the invitees, it's time, come. And we read that some hear that invitation and I've got my farm to attend to, I've got my business to attend to, and they neglect the invitation. Exact same word. They don't pay attention. They don't give it the importance it deserves. They, they, they see other things as more pressing and more important. They're preoccupied. They considered it unimportant, and they disrespected the king who issued that invitation. They despised the servants who delivered it. In fact, some, it says, they even beat them and killed them. They neglected that great invitation to the king. It can mean that you listen, you hear it, but you fail to take that message to heart as we spoke of the parable of the soils a few moments ago. That, that, that rocky soil professor, he hears the word, he, he receives it with joy initially. 
But when tribulation come and persecution come, difficulty, he has no root in himself, meaning there's no true conversion, and he immediately falls away. This is not what I anticipated. Or the thorny soil professor, he hears the word. He seems also to receive it. It, 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 it grows up for a time, but he's preoccupied by the cares of this world, and it chokes out all the life, and it proves unfruitful. In both cases, they heard the gospel. They heard the message. They listened. They, they, they seemed to respond with favor, but in, uh, eventually they neglected it. They failed to give it the attention, the continual attention it deserves. And ultimately, they were lost. So some won't listen at all. Some listen, but they don't really follow through, as it were, because they don't have a new heart. Others, for a host of reasons, they they profess faith, but they ultimately abandon that faith. Think of Judas Iscariot, who who betrayed the Lord Jesus. He abandoned the faith, and we read that he was a son of perdition in the Scriptures. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, if you would. I had a great warning in Hebrews 6 against apostasy. Hebrews 6, verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the, the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, up to the point where it says they fall away or abandon, it sounds like we're talking about real converts. And yet they're not. They fall away. It's a sober warning against outright apostasy. And Hebrews provide, presents many warnings against drifting and wandering and even apostasy. Now, now we have to ask the question, is it possible for a real Christian to fall away, to abandon ultimately and be lost? And the answer is no. Scripture is full of uh, assurances that a real Christian will never be lost. But the realization is there are many who profess faith they're not real Christians. In Matthew 7, you remember Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and, and in your name perform mir- many miracles? So when we read in Hebrews, they've tasted of the Holy Spirit. What are we talking about here? It might be what we're referring to in Matthew 7. I'm not sure. But it's interesting in Matthew 7, Jesus does not say those things were not real. They didn't happen. It was all a show. He also doesn't say, I used to know you, but I don't know you anymore. He says, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, depart from me. Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and hear that response. So how is it possible that we find these kind of warnings to Christians? Is that somehow contradicting the assurance that God will preserve his saints? The answer is no. The reality is these warnings are the means that God uses to keep us watchful, to keep us persevering. There's a wonderful example of this um, in Acts chapter 27. Paul is a prisoner. He's on his way to Rome to appear before Caesar. He's on a ship, 
And at first he says, we really should not go. They couldn't get on weather.com and see there was a massive storm coming, but Paul knew we shouldn't go, and they went anyway, and the massive storm came. And everyone on the ship began to despair of life and thought all hope is, in verse 20 it says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. But then we read that an angel appeared to Paul and said, there will be no loss of life. You will all arrive safely. And so Paul communicated that to the, to the crew and to the soldiers. Every single person on the ship will survive. But as they approached an island, they saw land at night. And they saw all these rocks, and they knew the the ship was going to hit the rocks, and they were afraid it would break apart and they could drown. Some of the sailors started lowering boats so they might escape. And Paul, when he found that out, he came out to them and said, you must not do this. If you leave the ship, you will not survive. Now, wait a minute. Didn't he promise that everybody was going to survive? Yeah, he did. If you leave the ship, you won't survive. Well, what happened? They all stayed on the ship, and they all survived. And it was the warning that Paul issued to them that was the means God used to keep them on the ship so that they all survived. And God uses these warnings against apostasy to keep real Christians persevering. So we need to take these warnings seriously. These warnings don't come to us with a wink and a nod saying, if you depart from the faith, but you really can't. No. If you depart, you'll be lost. Don't play around. God used these warnings to keep his saints persevering. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we find these over and over again in the book of Hebrews, inspiring real Christians to persevere. So while it doesn't teach that a believer can lose his salvation, it does ask the sober question, how can we escape if we do not give this salvation the attention that it deserves? And using that question, is intended to keep God's people from drifting and to paying much more close attention. Well, he concludes the text with an authoritative confirmation in verse 3. We read these words. In the middle of verse 3, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Remember, there's this contrast in chapter 1 between Jesus and angels. In the very beginning of chapter 1, there was the message delivered by prophets, but now the last message, the final message, delivered by God's own Son. And so that law which came through angels, as important and reliable as it is, is not nearly so important as the gospel. And we have this this threefold confirmation of this message. And there were some who may have found themselves losing their grip, as it were, wondering, is this message really reliable? Did we miss something? And so we read here in Hebrews, first of all, it was declared first by the Lord. God spoke through his son, we read in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Jesus is the final word. He is the ultimate revelation of God. Because he is God, he can be fully trusted in all that he says. And so this good news was delivered first through him. Well, some might say, well, what if those words were not transmitted clearly? Maybe some heard it, but somehow it got lost in translation. What if somehow people got the message wrong? And so we read, secondly, that it was attested by those who heard him directly. Firsthand witnesses. 
This is not hearsay. This is not fable. This is not myth. These are first-person eyewitness accounts. Look with me at John, 1 John chapter 1, if you would. John emphasizes that his message is a first-hand account. 1 John 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. And that word see is the word we get theater from. It's not just we noticed it. We were gazing with fixed attention, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, it's very likely from all that we read here that the writer of Hebrews is addressing first-generation Christians, those who heard the message directly from the apostles. He says, it was declared, excuse me, he says, it was uh, uh, declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard. And again, if, this, if I'm correct in Hebrews 10, the, the persecution that broke out was that initial persecution in Jerusalem that caused the church to spread. And again, that's just a, that's an educated guess, all right? But these, he's addressing, heard it firsthand. Is Peter not reliable? Is John not reliable? James? James, who gave his life. And as, as, we, as we follow out the history of these disciples, we find that every single one of them was martyred for their faith, and not one ever recanted. Not one ever said, you know, it was all just made up. We got it wrong. It was a, it was a conspiracy. We stole the body. No. They testified to the veracity of this message with their own lives. But not only did Jesus declare it, not only did the disciples transmit it, it was also attested we read in verse 4, God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, throughout the Scripture, we find these triads, signs, wonders, miracles. We find that triad a few times. And it's speaking of the same thing, but different nuances of meaning. A sign is a, 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 a manifestation of God's power for the particular purpose of of confirming a message. It emphasizes this message that's been proclaimed is actually reliable. You can believe this. How do I know? Because how could I do these signs if it weren't the point? They verify the revelation being given. It's one of the reasons that we believe signs are no longer given today because revelation has ceased. The message is complete. It's inscripturated in God's word so we don't need these signs any longer. Wonders emphasize the amazement created by these miracles. Whether it was Jesus, when word got out of what he was doing, people came from far and wide. They were amazed at the power of Christ manifested through his miracles. And then miracles itself simply emphasize the power of God manifested or revealed through these miraculous events. And then it's testified as manifested by the gifts that God has blessed the church with according to his sovereign purposes, distributing those gifts as he sees fit. Now, Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders amazed the crowd, but they, more than that, they testified to the authority of his ministry. 
God gave the apostles signs and wonders we read. The wonders captured their attention. The signs testified that the gospel they're proclaiming was true. Paul said uh, of his own ministry, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, the same triad. So the emphasis here, emphasis here is that Jesus delivered this message. The apostles faithfully attested it. And that God put his seal of approval on it through signs and wonders of miracles. And so we must listen up. We must pay attention. We must not drift away. In Hebrews 12, we read, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, speaking of those who rejected the law in the wilderness, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Well, just a couple things as we wrap this up. First of all, this is a powerful argument against what we might call easy believism or decisionism. Now, what do I mean by that? Are those terms you may not be familiar with. It's the idea that you hear the message and you simply say the printer's prayer, sinner's prayer. You sign a card, you walk an aisle, you raise a hand, you make an outward external decision but there's no emphasis of repentance. There's no requirement that our lives are submitted to the Lord Jesus as Lord as well as Savior. There's no emphasis on a new heart and a transformed life. Just made a decision, that's all. And you believe that you're in and you have your fire insurance policy that costs you very little. And we don't earn our salvation, no way. It's all of God. But a real Christian's life is now devoted to him. We don't go our own way. And I've seen so many times this, this idea, once saved, always saved. Someone dies who's lived this profligate life, who's lived this, this, this sinful, wicked life and have rejected God. And I hear people who cared about him say, but you know, he prayed the sinner's prayer when he was eight years old, so we know he'll be in heaven. Really? No, we don't. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. It's not they knew him once, but no longer. It's that he never knew them. An external decision and simple cheap grace saves no one. It really inoculates people from the gospel. They think, they, they think they're fine. We used to, in seminary, we used to say we have to get people lost before we can get them saved because they've made a decision and they think they're okay. It's hollow. It saves no one. So the question comes, how will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is you won't. So pay attention. Make sure that your faith is genuine. And the true test of genuine faith is you persevere to the end, seeking to live a life pleasing to Jesus Christ. Well, you might ask the question, how can I be sure? How can I have assurance that I'm going to persevere to the end? I struggle. Well, Scripture gives us three bases for assurance. One is, there are genuine fruits of grace in your life that you couldn't explain any other way. Not perfect. None of us is perfect until we get to heaven. But there's real evidence of a changed heart. There's an ongoing faith. I am trusting Jesus. It's not that I trusted him a long time ago, but I don't care anymore. It's I am actively trusting Jesus every single day of my life. I hold fast to the confession. And thirdly, there's that internal witness of the Holy Spirit bearing witness that we are He's called the spirit of adoption in Romans 8, that we are children of God. 
And you may struggle to lay hold of any one of those or, in fact, all of them at some points in our lives because real Christians can go through periods of doubt. But all three of those are powerful blessings and signs of real salvation and the privilege of true believers. We find here a solemn warning, and so I want to ask you, are you in Christ? You've been exposed to the gospel. Maybe you've been exposed all your life. Maybe today's the very first time you've ever heard these things, but are you listening? Are you paying attention? If you neglect to give this message of salvation, of forgiveness of our sins, of righteousness in Christ, if you neglect to give it the attention that it demands, how will you escape? There's only one deliverance from the wrath of God, and it's the gospel of Jesus. It will cost you nothing, but it will cost you everything. But it will give you infinitely more than you realize. The, only, the, the invitation is open. Jesus has come. Now, you don't have a guarantee that it'll be open tomorrow. You might not be here tomorrow. How do you know? We don't have control of such things. All you have control of is right now. And the invitation is run to Christ. Flee to Christ. Cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And ask for his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. Some of you would say, you know, I, I'm listening to this. and I, I know I'm a Christian, but I have to admit I, I've drifted a bit. I, I'm not where I used to be. I'm not where I need to be. How do I get back? That's why we have a throne of grace. Let us approach with boldness, with confidence, this throne of grace, because we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus. He experienced temptation the same way we do, but he never sinned, and he can give us all that we need, the grace to help in time of need. What's your greatest time of need? When you're spiritually weak, when you feel guilty, when you feel ashamed, when you feel defeated or discouraged. Those are times of need. And the throne of grace is there for you. Come. Lay hold of that which God freely promises his children. The gospel, this message, it, it, it brings a great salvation. It provides us with great blessings. Our sins are forgiven, paid for by Jesus. We are justified. We're declared perfectly righteous before God the Father because of the righteousness that Jesus achieved for us. We're set free from the condemnation of sin, but we're also continually, progressively set free from the power and the influence of sin so that as we are united with Christ, more and more we're able to walk in freedom. It cleanses our consciences. It covers our shame. We're reconciled to God. Formerly we were enemies. Now we are called sons and daughters because we're adopted. And there's nothing that can ever separate us from the love of our Father. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He seals us for the day of redemption so that we cannot ultimately be lost. We have the assurance that every day Jesus intercedes for us. That God Every day works all things together for our good. We have a peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. We have that open invitation to that throne of grace to receive the mercy and the grace that we need in our time of need. And we have a good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who knows us, his sheep, and we know him. And as we sang in that Neumeister hymn a little while ago, if we wander off, the shepherd goes after us goes after us. Like that dive master going after my friend Lou, he grabs us and he brings us to safety because he's not willing that one of his would perish. We have received a great salvation. It's greater than anything this world could offer.
If that's so, then you and I must pay attention. We must be careful that we do not drift away, that we do not wander off, that we fix our eyes upon Jesus and that we run with endurance the race he's marked for us. In just a moment, I'm going to go ahead and ask the team if y'all come up. But I'm going to read you the words of the hymn. We're going to close. Musicians, go ahead. Owen, if you could go ahead and put the words up for me. Today thy mercy calls us to wash away our sin. However great our trespass. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Whatever we have been, however long from mercy our hearts have turned away, thy precious blood can cleanse us and make us white today. Today thy gate is opened and all who enter in shall find a father's welcome and pardon for their sin. The past shall be forgotten. He remembers our sins no more. A present joy be given. A future grace be promised and a glorious crown in heaven. Today our Father calls us. The Holy Spirit waits. His blessed angels gather around the heavenly gates. No question will be asked us how often we have come, although off we wandered. This is our Father's home. Oh, all-embracing mercy. Oh, ever-open door. What should we do without thee when heart and eye run o'er? Oh, when I lost those words, I need, I need them back up. <laughs> I didn't have those in my notes. When all things seem against us to drive us to despair, we know that gate is open, this one gate. One ear will hear our prayer. Amen.